well. Good morning, brothers morning. and sisters. It's a joy to be here and a bit of a challenge too. I'm a, oh, sorry, I didn't know. Thank you. I'm very tired, I must say. <laughs> Just arrived uh, last Friday. My wife, uh, Michelle, she sends her greetings too. And uh, my daughter too, I suppose, she's eight years old. It's a privilege also to share the word of God with you. And I think by now you have noticed that English is not my mother tongue. But I will try my best and I trust the Lord will bless his word. We will start with a new series today that uh, Craig came up with. And I think it's a great idea. Between now and Easter, we will look at accounts in scripture where people were raised from the dead. And uh, we make a start today and we work our way to what I think can be called the greatest event in history, the resurrection of our Lord Jesus, which of course you will remember at Easter. <coughs> Paul says in Colossians that Jesus Christ is the firstborn from the dead. Firstborn not so much in, time, in terms of time, because there were others raised before him, but definitely in position, as Paul continues in uh, Colossians, that in all things, he might have the preeminence, that means the most important place. His resurrection is also unique in the sense that he rose, he died first and then he rose to never die again. There were others, of course, like uh, Lazarus and Dorcas and you name them, Jairus, daughter. They were raised and then after some time they died again. But Jesus, he could say to John in Revelation chapter 1, I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. But I think what I find most amazing is that he is the only one who not only rose by the power of God the Father, but who also rose in his own power. He said in John chapter 10, uh, the, the, the chapter about the, the good shepherd he said I lay down my life for the sheep and then he says I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it back again yeah. just imagine that he died on the cross he gave up his ghost he decided now I die father in your hands I commit my spirit and then three days later he was there in the grave and just imagine he was laying there his body dead and cold and stiff and suddenly and I don't know how but suddenly by an act of his own divine power he opened his eyes sat up straight and walked out of the tomb up from the grave he arose with a mighty triumph over his foes he arose a victor from the dark domain and he lives forever with his saints to raise to reign he arose he arose hallelujah Christ arose at the same time, it's also true, and that is very often the case in the Bible, that two different things and even contrasting things are true at the same time. It is also true that the Father raised him. As Jesus cried on the cross, it is finished. He died. And three days later, the Father says, yes, indeed, it is finished. I accept, fully satisfied, approved. And God, so to say, puts his signature <coughs> under the work of Christ by raising him up from the dead 
so that every human being in this world and in this country and in the city of JV can come to him to be fully forgiven. Now since the fall, since Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, it is impossible for us to escape death. We will all die one day. But here is Jesus. He is truly God and truly man. And for him, since he is so holy and perfect and sinless, for him it is impossible to remain dead. And Peter said that on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 1. God raised him up, having loosed the pains of death because it is not possible that he should be held by it. Hallelujah. What a savior. But that's not a topic for today. Almost say unfortunately. But we will look at another great story in the Old Testament. As I said, a series of events in the Bible where people were raised from the dead and we make a start with the story of Elijah in First Kings. Elijah. I, just now I learned that we have an Elijah in our midst. He's at the back there. His name means my God is Yahweh. Eli means my God. Jah means Yahweh. My God is Yahweh. And I put that as a title over the sermon. We will look at three things. The reality of God, the provision of God, and communion with God. So my God is Yahweh. The reality of God, the provision of God, communion with God. And to put things in context, let me read for you from Joshua uh, chapter 6 first before we move over to 1 Kings Joshua chapter 6 and verse 26 the Israelites had just crossed the Jordan entered the promised land and they had uh, they are rejoicing because they have conquered at Jericho the walls have crumbled Jericho is destroyed and then in verse 26 Joshua says he charged them at the time saying cursed be the man before the Lord who rises up and builds this city Jericho he shall lay its foundation with his firstborn or at the cost of the life of his firstborn and with his youngest he shall set up its gates that was in according to my Newberry Bible in 1451 BC. Now we just skip forward some 500 something years to 918 BC to the reign of King Ahab. He was king of Israel, the 10 tribes reigning in Samaria in 1st Kings 16. Let's turn to 1st Kings 16 and we read from verse 30 onwards. First Kings 16 and verse 30 onwards. Now Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all who were before him. And it came to pass, as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that he took as wife Jezebel, the daughter of Adbaal, king of the Sidonians. And he went and served Baal and worshipped him. Then he set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal which he had built in Samaria. 
and Ahab made a wooden image. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. In his days, Kiel of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundation with Abiram his firstborn, and at the cost of the life of his youngest son Sagab, he set up its gates, according to the word of the Lord, which he had spoken through Joshua the son of Nun. And Elijah the Tishbite of the inhabitants of Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years, except at my word. Let's pause here first. King Ahab, an extremely wicked king, married to an even more wicked woman called Jezebel. And she was the daughter of the king of Sidon. And Sidon was a country really dominated by Baal worship. And this Jezebel, she led her husband even more astray and we read that he built a temple for Baal and the Israelites the people of God as a nation they followed blindly and plunged themselves into this idolatry they just ignored the word of God or they even rejected it and we can do that we can ignore the word of God or postpone it Say, okay, someday later, but not now. Or we just reject it. You can do that. But that doesn't mean that the word of God doesn't come true. It will. So here we have Kiel. I hope I pronounce his name correctly in English. In verse 34, chapter 16. And he thought, let's rebuild Jericho. It used to be there, this ancient city. It used to be there for a reason. The location is excellent, we read in Second Kings. So let's do it. And very sadly, when they had just started, his older son, Abiram, died. But nevertheless, they continued. And just before they finished the city, his younger son, Sagar, also died. Now, I don't know what he has been thinking Probably he was totally ignorant of the words of Joshua, which were actually the words of God, as we read just now. I mean, if you reject the Bible, then you also don't know what it says. Probably he didn't know. Maybe he someday heard the story about Joshua, but he thought, that's 500 years ago, leave it. Why should I take that seriously? I don't know what he thought. Maybe when his first, his older son died, he, he thought, Baal is displeased with me. Let's worship him even more. I don't know what he thought, but I'm quite convinced that Elijah, who suddenly for the first time in this chapter 17 enters the scene, I'm quite confirmed that Elijah was very much impressed by what happened in the family of Heel. He knew my God is real. His word comes true even after five centuries. So we have Elijah here in, in, in chapter 17. And he knew, my God is real. And if that's the case, if the words of Joshua come true, then also the words of Moses must come true. In Deuteronomy 11, Moses had said, Take heed to yourself, lest your heart be deceived, 
and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them, lest the Lord's anger be aroused against you, and he shut up the heavens, so that there shall be no rain, and the land yield no produce, and you perish quickly from the good land which the Lord is giving you. So here we have Elijah, and he is fully aware of the reality of God, and he knows God cannot bless his people if they ignore him and turn aside and worship idols. He must be true to his word, and therefore he goes to the king, and he says very boldly, as the Lord God of Israel is, before whom I stand, and he was probably the only one that he, that he knew of, before whom I stand, there shall be no dew nor rain these years except at my word. So the question this morning is, is God real to you? Maybe you're still young, and I consider myself young too, so you check for yourself why you fall in the range. Maybe you say, yeah, I believe the Bible, my, my parents believe it too, and uh, yeah, I, I believe it. But basically, I'm, I'm a student or a young professional, and tomorrow is Monday, and I'm going back to school or to work. And I don't really experience the reality of God. But the first question I would ask then, would you want to experience the reality of God? I think that's the first thing. Would you want it? Let me suggest two things. Maybe very obvious. Read your Bible. Seriously. And discover through the Bible who God is and who Jesus is. Because he becomes real to us through his word. I've never met Jesus. But I know him. I want to know him better, but I know him. How? Through his word. That's how he becomes real to us. Read your Bible. Seriously. And secondly, and I say it deliberately, secondly, read biographies, good biographies. It can be very encouraging to read of the experiences of men and women of God who have proven him to be real. I come back to that later. So the reality of God. That was my first point. And now the provision of God. Let's continue reading in verse 2, 1 Kings uh, chapter 17 verse 2 then the word of the Lord came to him that is Elijah saying get away from here and turn eastward and hide by the brook Cherith which flows into the Jordan and it will be that you shall bring from the brook and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there so he went and did according to the word of the Lord for he went and stayed by the brook Cherith which flows into the Jordan the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening and he drank from the brook. And it happened after a while that the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him saying, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Zidon, and dwell there. See, I have commanded a widow there to provide for you. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, indeed a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Please, bring me a little water in a cup that I may drink. And as she was going to get it, he called to her and said, Please, bring me a morsel of bread in, my hand, in your hand. So she said, As the Lord your God lives, 
I do not have bread, only a handful of flour in a bin and a little oil in a jar. And see, I'm gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son, that we may eat it and die. And Elijah said to her, do not fear. Go and do as you have said, but make me a small cake from it first and bring it to me. And afterward, make some for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, the bin of flour shall not be used up, nor shall the jar of oil run dry, until the day the Lord sends rain on the earth. So she went away and did according to the word of Elijah, and she and he and her household ate for many days. The bin of flour was not used up, nor did the jar of oil run dry, according to the word of the Lord which he spoke by Elijah. Elijah has just entered the scene at the beginning of this chapter. He has just started his ministry by speaking very boldly to the king. And then God commands him, hide by the brook chariot. But I've just started, hide yourself. And chariot means to cut off, and quite literally, Elijah is cut off from the rest of the people. He's very lonely suddenly alone with God but God provides for him I have commanded the ravens he says in verse 4 that's interesting ravens are unclean birds and notorious for stealing stealing probably from the warehouses of Ahab because he was probably the only one who one of the few who still had food and he cared more for his horses and donkeys than for the people and God sends his ravens go collect food for Elijah maybe you think God can't really use me see I'm I'm not very talented I'm not very gifted uh, I'm a new Christian I need, still need to learn a lot I don't know my Bible too well or maybe you say I failed in the past my time is over well if God can use unclean ravens he can certainly use you on the other hand maybe you think like me see here I am all the way from Holland preaching at IBCBI in English or more God can really use me yeah well, he could as well use the ravens or a donkey or even a worm. You see, the point is, after all, it is God who provides. And in his grace, he wants to use you and me. And the question is not so much, are we good enough? Because there's no one good enough. There's only one who is good enough, the perfect servant of Jehovah. And we are all fickle I feel quite fickle and the question is not am I good enough the question is am I available are you available and then God wants to use you and the ravens keep coming morning and evening morning and evening every day and Elijah knows in the morning yeah tonight they'll be there again and in the evening he knows tomorrow morning they will come again bring bread and meat 
we also might take things for granted after a while. And therefore, God puts him to a test. The brook dries up. To make sure that he, and apply it to ourselves, that we keep focused on the giver and not so much on the gift. The brook dries up. Now what? Elijah waits to receive instruction from the Lord. And the Lord says, go to Zarephath. I have commanded a widow to take care of you. That means he had to cross through dangerous territory. You can be quite sure that right now he is the most wanted person in the country. King Ahab knew that Elijah had said there will be no rain <coughs> except when I say it. You can be quite sure that he had been looking for Elijah. Where is this man? Had been hiding, but God says go. And he goes and he crosses through the country on his way to Sidon. And on his way, his heart must have <coughs> grieved a lot as he saw the barren land and the, the ground cracked and <coughs> no grass to be seen and carcasses of dead animals all over the place. Probably children with you know, the swollen bellies and the sunken eyes. The discipline of God was very severe and Elijah, Elijah knew it's because I prayed that prayer, is it? No. It's because the people sinned. And there he goes to Zarephath, to a widow. It's not very promising. When there's a famine, you'd rather be taken care of by a rich guy and not a widow who has nothing to share. And we read the story. I'm going to be very brief on that. I see that time is moving on. Elijah speaks of the God he knows. The woman doesn't know this God yet. She says, your God. Elijah says, my God is Yahweh. And he says, the bin of flour shall not be used up, nor shall the jar of oil run dry. Just imagine that happy company of people. Suddenly there's hope, there's life. The fear of death has passed. And there's three people giving thanks to the God of Israel in a pagan country. There's always grace with God. Even when the, his people have sunken so low, he still has his eyes in this pagan country on a poor widow. And he wants to take care of her. And Elijah is blessed too. Because suddenly he has company of this widow with her boy. We need people around us. That's one of the reasons why we come to church. God knows that. But then, let's read on. Chapter 17, verse 17. Now it happened, after these things, that the son of the woman who owned the house became sick. And his sickness was so serious that there was no breath left in him. So she said to Elijah, What have I to do with you, O man of God? Have you come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to kill my son? And he said to her, Give me your son. So he took him out of the arms, her arms and carried him to the upper room where he was staying and laid him on his own bed. Now let's pause here first. I pause here deliberately. And just imagine that you don't know how the story ends. 
because this woman also didn't know how the story would end. Neither do we in our lives when we suddenly meet hardship. All she knew was that suddenly all her hope and joy and reason to live had disappeared. I don't have a clue what it means to lose a child. I have a daughter and she is eight years old, back in Holland. She wrote a poem in school because uh, she was crying in school because I'd be gone for 10 days, quite dramatic. She wrote a poem in school, half of the lines saying how much she loved me and how we are always together and stuff like that. And the other half of the lines telling me not to go. She's very sweet. I miss her. I don't have a clue what it means to lose a child. Maybe there's somebody in the room who exactly knows what it means. I don't know. Here she is, with a boy in her arms, cold, he's dead. And through her tears she looks up and she sees the bin of flour, the jar of oil, and she knows, yeah, it's there, there's food there, God provides. But he can't eat it, he's dead, why? And I don't like, feel like eating either, why, 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 why? Then she starts to accuse Elijah, verse 18. Have you come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to kill my son? And Elijah, what's he supposed to say? How should he react? And who could, he could say all kind of things. You know, you both would have died if I hadn't come. Or it's not my fault, I, I can't help it. Or maybe it is your sin after all. Well, you don't say things like that, hopefully. Maybe you say, you know, all things work together for good. At least that's a verse from the Bible. You can't go wrong there. Well, I think you can. Please don't say that. At least not if you want to be slapped in your face. Even though it's true, don't say it. I think it's not in the text. But I think if Elijah had any pastoral skills at all, I think he kept quiet first. And that's very wise to do, keep quiet. Mourn with those who mourn, grieve with those who grieve. Whatever you want to say of the friends of Job, at least they managed to hold their tongue for seven days first before they started talking. And then, finally, Elijah speaks, give me your son. No reply. And then he takes that dead boy out of her arms and carries that boy upstairs to his upper room where he was staying. And the woman doesn't refuse. She is totally numbed by grief. Just imagine her sitting there alone downstairs. Husband dead, son dead. Nothing left. Why do some people suffer so much? I don't know. Let's see how the story ends, verse 20. Then he cried out to the Lord and said, O oh Lord my God, have you also brought tragedy on the widow with whom I lodge by killing her son? And he stretched himself out on the child three times and cried out to the Lord and said, O oh Lord my God, I pray let this child's soul come back to me. 
Then the Lord heard the voice of Elijah, and the soul of the child came back to him, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper room into the house and gave him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. Then the woman said to Elijah, Now by this I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is the truth. Elijah, what are you doing? That's weird, man. On top of that boy. That's not how you raise dead people. Look at how Jesus and, and, and Peter, how they did it. And imagine Elijah looks at you and he says, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know Peter. All I know is that nobody has ever been raised from the dead. What do you mean? Nobody has ever been raised from the dead. So how do you know that this is possible? God told you, right? No. But it was God's idea, right? No. It was my idea. Dear friends, I think this struck me most as I realized that Elijah here is asking something from the Lord. He's asking for the impossible and it had never happened before. We are quite used to the idea that Sometimes people are raised from the dead. I mean, we know the stories in the Bible and we know, yeah, God can do that. I believe that. But for Elijah, this was new. That never happened before. And that brings me to my last point. Communion with God. Elijah knew his God. Oh, Lord, my God. He says in verse 20 and again in verse 21. My God. He knew his God and he said, it can't be. It can't be that you take her son. Why not? Millions have lost their son. Human history is full of grief beyond words. What do you mean it can't be? Go back with me to that brook Cherith. What do you think Elijah had been doing there? He walked with God. He spent time with God. He experienced intimacy with God. There at that brook, he learned to recognize that still, small voice. Or it can also be translated, a delicate, whispering voice. Later in chapter 19, when after the wind and the earthquake and the fire, if you're familiar with the story, there comes that small voice and immediately Elijah knows, that is my God. And I thought of my childhood. Once in a couple of years, a brother from China, a missionary, he would visit our church back in Holland, in Rotterdam. His name was Chen, brother Chen. Much later I found out that there are millions of Chinese people with that name. But for me, that time there was only one and only one brother Chen. He had been imprisoned for some 20 years in labor camps for the name of Jesus. And there he got the lowest of all jobs. He had to collect human waste and bring it to the dunghill. You can imagine that after a while he smelled terrible. People despised him. They kept their distance. Very lonely. But I remember him sharing in our church that this dunghill became his rose garden. For there he walked alone with his Lord. And I remember him singing in our church solo in Chinese. I come to the garden alone, 
while the dew is still on the roses, and the voice I hear falling on my ear, the Son of God discloses. And he walks with me, and he talks with me, and he tells me I am his own. And the joy we share as we tarry there, none other has ever known. Communion with God. He said, I didn't smell the dunghill anymore. I believe it's true. Elijah knew his God, and he knew him because he walked with him. And, and I think it's important to mention, I'm sure he knew his word. Moses said in Deuteronomy in his song, and Elijah knew that, Now see that I, even I, am he, and there is no God besides me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. I think Elijah remembered that. And maybe, I don't know, but maybe he knew of the prayer of Hannah in his time not too long ago, the mother of that great prophet Samuel. She said in her song, The hungry shall cease to hunger. The Lord kills and makes alive. He brings down the grave and brings up. And Elijah knew that in the case of this widow and her son, it just couldn't be that this woman would lose her son. How did he know? I don't know. He walked with God. Just now I suggested, and especially to young people, so again, including myself, all of us basically read biographies. I read the books of Isabel Kuhn. I don't know whether you know that name. I read that, I think, in my early 20s. And recently, I reread her first book, By Searching. Really recommend that. It caught me all over again. She was a missionary to China with the China Inland Mission, which is now OMF. And she writes about her search after God in her younger years. And somewhere in the book, when she's at a conference, and we're talking about the 1920s here, she bumps into what she thought was some old bachelor. But to her surprise, he happens to be the speaker for that evening. There was James Fraser, missionary to the Lisu people in China. And later, this man would become her field leader. She managed to talk to him about her calling to the mission field. And they sit next to each other on the beach, staring over the sea. Let me just quote for you. I wonder if you ever will get to China. You are very young. You have great obstacles to face. He lapsed into a reverie for a few moments, then began to talk as if he knew what to say. It is even conceivable that after you get to Bible school, Satan will attempt to get you away. For instance, a telegram might come saying that your mother was very sick, it's the 1920s, and urging you to return home immediately. Now, if that should happen, you cannot leave the moment you get the telegram. You would have to pack, to pack your trunk and buy a ticket, and these things take time. Is there any Christian in Vancouver or here whom you can trust to be unprejudiced and yet godly enough to discern such a matter and be able to advise you? Yes, Mr. Charles Thompson, District Secretary of the CIM, I answered. The very man, he replied quickly. If you get such a telegram, wire immediately to Mr. Thompson, asking him to check just how ill your mother is. By the time your trunk is packed, you should have this reply, and can then see more clearly the path the Lord would have you take. 
I listened in awe, but would have still been more amazed if I had known how exactly that prophecy was to be fulfilled. He that is spiritual judges all things, 1 Corinthians 2. Was an afternoon well spent. Upon the plastic material of a young life had been imprinted standards and ideals which were to last forever. And a deep glimpse had been afforded me into the life that is hidden in God. The cost of it, the fragrance of it, and the power of it. Sometime later, when she's at the Moody Bible Institute, she receives a telegram. Father fatally injured in elevator accident, come home at once. Suddenly, in, in imagination, I was far away, sitting on a seaside beach, beside a tall, strong man who was looking out over the breaking sea with brooding eyes, and he was saying, Satan may, may try to get you away from the Institute. Is there anyone you can, who you can depend on for godly, unprejudiced judgment? In a flash, I recognized that Mr. Fraser's foresight had been an exact, exact premonition in all except one detail. He had thought it would be mother, but it turned out to be my brother who summoned me home. And since there was a plan already, she knew exactly what to do. And before supper that evening, the answering telegram arrived. It read, Father improving, sends love, and says, Stays at, stay at your post, writing Thompson. How did Mr. Fraser know this might happen? When God's child is living close to him and perfectly yielded to his will, it is possible to spread his mind out in the Lord's presence. Let me repeat that. When God's child is living close to him and perfectly yielded to his will, it is possible to spread his mind out in the Lord's presence and catch the instruction of God, especially if interceding for someone else. If there were no God, this could not be. Spreading out one's mind in the Lord's presence, that's what Elijah did. That's what he had learned. That's why he could intercede for others and ask for the impossible. That's why he knew that in this case, it could not be that this boy would remain dead. And therefore he prayed. And the Lord heard the voice of Elijah for the first time in history. The soul of the child came back to him and he revived. Now maybe after the service you come to me and you ask me, Eric, what do you know about this? By the way, I hope you do. Don't raise me on a platform. Thankfully I'm not on a platform. <laughs> Don't treat me like the new preacher. I'd rather have you ask me, what do you know about the things you talk about? And I try my best to be transparent with you and honest with you. And if you ask me, what do you know about this communion with God you're talking about? I must say, occasionally. Occasionally. Yeah, I read my Bible and I pray morning and evening most of the time and throughout the day. And together with my wife, Michelle, we do our best to bring up our daughter in the fear of the Lord. But what about this spreading out your mind in the presence of God? Experiencing His presence as if you can touch Him. Isabakun writes about that. 
as he felt the presence of the Lord so much that that she could almost touch him and Craig mentioned it just now in his prayer occasionally I remember walking in a small park and I was laying before the Lord a matter that really troubled me and we were discussing it we were walking together Jesus and I and his presence was so real that suddenly I decided I'm going to walk through the grass so that my Lord can walk in the middle of the road. Can't be that he needs to walk in the grass. It was very real. And you say, when was that? It was three or four years ago. I call that occasionally. But the Lord knows that it is my desire for, for myself and for all of us to know him intimately. To experience the reality of God, to enjoy his provision, and to learn communion with him maybe like Elijah I was given the chance to serve this Sunday and next Sunday and then the Lord calls me back to Holland come come to my brook of Cherith need to teach you some more I've asked the Lord often come closer Lord come closer but each time I feel like he's replying to me no you come closer you're too busy Eric come closer where are you I want to close with one verse from John 14 he who has my commandments and keeps them it is he who loves me and he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and reveal myself to him. Now I don't think the Lord is saying, you say you love me, obey. Then only I love you. I don't think he's saying that. Thankfully not. He loved us way before we ever loved him. I think this is what the verse means. Lord, I love you. I want to be close to you. Of course I want to do what you say. I don't want anything between you and me. And you love me. And when there's nothing between us, love can flow freely to and fro, two ways. There's communion, there's intimacy, there's a relationship. And then comes the promise, says Jesus, I will reveal myself to you and that is a foretaste of heaven that is eternal life now shall we pray father we believe that you are real we know that, we believe that, but we want to experience that on a daily basis. We give thanks for all your provision in our lives, even today, the opportunity to meet one another and to gather undisturbed and in freedom. 
Father, it is our desire to know you intimately, to have this communion with you. We don't want anything between yourself and us. And we look forward to your promise. I will reveal myself to you. Father, please do that in the coming days. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank <laughs> you.